Desire, doubt, and affirmation. Desire, doubt, and affirmation. I am, of course, talking about the love of my life, my wife, Melissa, and the problem of durian. <laughs> I've never liked durian. You know, I can't actually be within 10 feet of the stuff without feeling quite nauseous. But then I met Melissa, a Malaysian girl, who from the earliest memories has been taught that durian is actually a delicious treat. And so very early on in our relationship, I, of course, I learned about her love of durian. And I really desired to tell her that I didn't like durian. Because I knew if I didn't come clean, it would impact where we eat together. What we eat together. What, perish the thought, one day our children might eat together. I really desired to tell her but I had doubts. How deep did her love for durian really go? Would she be repulsed in horror that I stood against the fruit she and her family held so dear? Well, the great relief when I finally stoked up the courage and I shared with her my loathing of durian, not only did she affirm me in saying, it's okay, Tim, you don't have to like durian. She even agreed she wouldn't make me eat it with her. She wouldn't even force me to go where durian is sold. And that affirmation was wonderful. Desire, doubt, affirmation. Three powerful ingredients of any close relationship. And they are at the heart of the opening of this song that we are starting in this morning, the Song of Songs. That's right. We are delving into the Song of Songs. Why, we might ask. Why Song of Songs? And yes, it's a fair question. I suspect very few of us have ever sat under a sermon on this book of the Bible before. Some of us might even be wondering, is this really appropriate? A song that describes an intimate relationship using powerful and in places even erotic imagery. Is this really a good idea? And I understand and appreciate we might have real reservations as we start in this song today. But I think we're given a couple of reasons at the very start of this song that help us to see its great value for us as God's people. Come with me to Song of Songs 1 verse 1, and it opens, the song of songs. That's how the song begins, the song of songs. It's not just saying this is one song amongst many other songs, but that this is the song above all other songs, like the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings. This is the greatest of Songs. No other song in the scriptures carries this title, carries this honor. Well, that should already attract our attention to it. It is the very best of songs. Why would we not want to hear it? But then we're given some context to this song. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Now that could mean this song is written by Solomon. 
But, but the Hebrew behind these words in our translation, they don't really indicate authorship here. And given that this song, as we will see, celebrates exclusive marital love, well, if you know your Bible, you know that Solomon wasn't exactly the greatest role model in that respect. He did not keep himself for one wife. Despite the Lord's warning, he took many women to himself. The King Solomon that we do see depicted in this song, it is an ideal picture, an ideal example of what Solomon might have been. I mean, Solomon was considered the greatest, one of the greatest kings of the Old Testament, God's people Israel, greatest in wisdom, greatest in wealth in his reign. So, so maybe the author is depicting what Solomon would have been had he been the greatest in marital love as well. But I don't think this is written by Solomon. No, instead, the author has written it for Solomon and has depicted him in ideal terms. That means this isn't just any love song. This is the love song of God's king and his bride. It depicts the beauty of sexual love as God intended it, which means this song is full of priceless wisdom for us living now in the 21st century because we live in a culture that constantly promotes such warped views of healthy sexual behavior today. So far from what God intended for our good. Every day, in the TV, in the news, in Newspapers, we see sex misused for selfish gain as a tool in advertising. Images promoted to entice lust. Sex is seen as a means to an end, commonly considered in many parts of the world any, uh, an essential part of any casual relationship. In the worst cases, sex is engaged in by two complete strangers, and then that pornography is consumed to fulfill the lustful desires of other complete strangers. Our world, which we're influenced by every day, denigrates and misuses God's gift of sexual intimacy with terrible consequences for our relationships. And this song, it's a wonderful corrective that helps us to celebrate the beauty of human intimacy as God wills it. So we, as a church, will be wiser in our relationships And also in how we can seek to guide and love and serve others in their relationships as we take on board the wisdom of this song. So let's begin with that first ingredient of close relationship, desire. Desire. Come with me to verse 2. And we see we're jumping straight in to the deep end. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oil is a fragrance. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. It's a sudden rush of powerful emotion, isn't it? There's there's no warning. There is no gradual preparation for us. No, straight away we have this woman expressing intense desire for the man whom she loves. And yet that is the way desire often works, isn't it? Rarely is there any warning for us. We don't get a heads up. You're about to become flush with desire. It happens suddenly. I remember inviting Melissa and some others out for dinner many years ago. Chili's at KLCC, big spender that I am. 
Uh, we weren't even dating at the time, me and Melissa. Uh, uh, but as I was walking towards Chulis at KLCC, suddenly Melissa came around the corner. Uh, and as soon as I actually saw her, I literally walked into a pillar. <laughs> it was very, very embarrassing. But in that moment, I actually lost the ability to walk in a straight line. I was stunned. And there was no warning, no preparation. That's the power of desire. As we see it here, a woman who longs for the embrace of her beloved, and she uses the most sensuous imagery to describe it. Your love is better than wine. Wine in the Bible is associated with the gladdening of the heart. You drink the best wine, and you will want to drink more of it. Well, this woman declares her love for her beloved is even more alluring. And then we move from taste to smell in verse 3. Your anointing oils are fragrant. She loves his smell. Must be a good smell. His fragrance reminds her all the more of her desire for him. And yet, it's not just about physical traits here. It's not just about the way he looks or the way he smells. She goes on, your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. His name. You see, one's name in this culture was so strongly associated with one's character, what they were really like as a person. And this man's character, what he was really like, it is wonderful, beautiful in her eyes. As his looks, his smell, well, equally, he is a man of great character before her, so much so that she declares that virgins love him. They aren't simply unmarried women. That's how we usually use uh, uh, the term these days. But women who have just come of age for marriage. And they're not competing with this woman for the affections of her beloved. They're just simply echoing her strong desires for him. It, they're probably the ones speaking later in verse 4. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. They reinforce her words. We will extol your love more than wine. They encourage this joyful desire she has for her beloved. And so burdened with such desire, well, she longs for desire to be fulfilled. Verse 4 again. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And you see the progression here. She, she longs to be with her beloved, but look at the pronouns closely as they lead to closer and closer intimacy. Draw me after you, they're separate, me, you, but then let us run. And so now they are together, and she states in great relief, the king has brought me into his chambers. Now what do we have here? I mean, first, it's just the beginning of the song. We've got this powerful desire. There's an invitation for him to take her, draw me after you, but then suddenly she's in his chambers, and yes, that does speak of sexual intimacy. How can the author speak of this so early in the song? Solomon doesn't even arrive for the wedding until chapter 3. What is this? Is this a premarital affair? Well, no, friends, it can't be if we take the context seriously because this is a song that celebrates sexual intimacy as God intended it for us and teaches us by his word. Now, yes, premarital sex, it did happen in Israel, and yet it was never celebrated in song. It was never seen as something good to be delighted in, 
But that still begs the question then, why have this allusion to sexual relations so early on in verse 4 of chapter 1? Well, I think the author is actually doing a fast forward here. But for the author, it's actually also, in one sense, a flashback for them as well. You see, the author, having, we know having written this song, they have experienced marital love. They, they must have to have written the song of songs. And so even so early on here, they help us to see from their own experience that this woman's right desires, longing for intimacy, it, it does find its full expression in the chambers of her beloved. Her desire finds fulfillment with the right man, but at the right time. It is a fast forward past the wedding. And we'll see more of this happening in the opening of this song. But here the emphasis is still on this growing, powerful desire. She longs to be with her beloved. And it is a good desire. Look. We're seeing here clearly sexual desire in and of itself is not wrong. It's not evil. It's tragic that there is this common misconception that to be a Christian means we must become overly prudish and view any desire for sex and intimacy as bad and dirty and to be avoided. And friends, that kind of thinking, it doesn't come from a biblical worldview. It comes from a fallen man-made philosophy that says all forms of physical desire, particularly sexual desire, is inherently corrupt. It's inherently uh, bad and wrong and to be avoided. But remember what God said in the very beginning? As As he brought all physical reality into being? As he brought the first man and the first woman together to be one flesh, he declared all that he had made to be Good. Our physical desire, our desire for physical intimacy is not evil in and of itself. If you're single and simply desire the intimacy of marriage, that is not wrong. If you're in a relationship and you desire its consummation in marriage, that is not wrong. But yes, of course, we must guard our hearts. We must be careful not to allow a healthy desire to become lust where we bring someone too close, too soon, either in our minds or in our physical behavior. But to simply desire to be close, to to know the longing that this woman does here, that is not wrong in and of itself. We move from desire to a very different sensation now, that of doubt. Doubt. That's the second common ingredient of close relationships where there is, of course, in this world such potential for disappointment, for despair. Now we see this woman's doubts, even as she longs for her beloved. And firstly, she doubts her appearance. Have a look in verse 5. And she sings, I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedah, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark because the sun has looked upon me. This woman fears that she cannot measure up to the conventional standards of beauty in her day. She fears her love will not be reciprocated because of how she appears. I am very dark, but lovely. She compares herself to Solomon's own tents in the, de- in the desert, which were, we suspect, a deep shade of brown. Now, it's important we see here the darkness of her skin is not pointing to her race, 
It's not racial in origin. In no way is this song suggesting that black or brown women are less attractive than others. No, this is a tan, a dark tan on her skin due to her own hard labor under the Mediterranean sun. Now in Europe these days, or so I've been told and seen, it's quite fashionable to have a tan. I had female friends back in the, in the totally not sun-drenched UK who paid dearly for their fake tans. It's a mark of beauty to be darker rather than pasty white back there. But in Solomon's day, to be tanned meant you were of low social stature. You weren't living the high life in the shade of the palace. No, you were exposed to the harsh sun as you labored in the fields. Verse 6 continues, my, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She's one, she's labored wonderfully for the sake of her own family, but her vineyard, the vineyard of her body, her skin, she has not been able to keep well. And she fears that this will put her beloved off. That's a fear shared today. We live in such a vain culture where women are objectified and taught through commercials and so-called beauty magazines that to be acceptable to men, your skin's got to be this tone, your eyelids have got to be this type, your nose has to be this shape. Well, that vanity existed in Solomon's day as well, and this woman is afraid she will fall victim for it. And so she cries out to her beloved, verse 7, tell me. You whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. She fears he will remain distant from her because of these doubts she has about her appearance. And she doesn't want to be like other women. Verse 7 again, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? You see, veiled women who hung around the tents of men they did not know, they were loose women. They were looking for intimacy with any man. She doesn't want to give that impression. She strongly desires her beloved, yes, but only her beloved. And so she wants to know exactly where he is. She doesn't play fast and loose. She exercises wise caution. And yet at the same time, not too much caution. She doesn't close up altogether. She doesn't fail to pursue this relationship at all for fear of being hurt. No, she strikes such a wise balance in her approach. She's open, but only for her beloved. And thankfully, having expressed her deep desires, her troubling doubts, we finally hear another voice as her beloved responds, and he does so in wonderful affirmation. Verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. You see, he's heard her doubts. He's listened carefully. And so he responds in affirmation, you are most beautiful in my eyes. He tells her exactly where to find him. Follow in the tracks. And yet not only that, verse 8, see what he sings? And pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. He actually invites her to join him outside under the sun that she fears. Come out to the fields. Pasture the flock with me. See, her tan is no issue for him. He embraces it. What amazing, sensitive affirmation. And so his praise of her continues. 
Now, guys, speaking to guys here, trust me on this one. When you are praising the love of your life, do not do this. Do not do what her beloved does here in verse 9. See what he sings? This is how he chooses to praise her. I compare you, my love, to a mare. Yeah. He compares her to a female horse. Don't do it, guys. Trust me, just don't go there. You've got to remember, it's a different time. It's a different culture. Call her a rose. Call her your honey bunny if she thinks you'll like it. Do not compare her to a horse. But that is what her man does here, and she delights in it. And thankfully, he does clarify what he means. She isn't just like any mare, but a mare amongst Pharaoh's chariots. Truly stunning horses. They were famously adorned with the most magnificent jewels. See verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. To, to, to me, my love, you are dazzling, you are brilliant, you are sublime. And others join in as her doubts are answered and affirmed here. Verse 11, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And with this, we're given another scene of intense intimacy. His affirmations have been received and so her love blossoms and flourishes. And it's another powerful fast forward to the wedding night, verse 12. Her king is on his couch, and she is as close to him as the fragrant oil he wears, verse 13. He is like a fragrance between her breasts. It's another powerful image of intimacy as they continue to affirm their love for one another. Verse 15, her beloved says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are dove. And she responds in kind. Verse 16, Behold, you are beautiful. My beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. She describes their relationship as a strong house of the finest wood. Cedar, pine, durable. It's going to last. And yet as they reach these dizzying heights of love, it does not mean that the doubts are fully removed. They linger, they continue. 2 verse 1. She speaks of herself, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. It sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It sounds very flattering at first, but she is not praising herself here. See, the rose of Sharon, it was more likely a crocus. It was a pretty flower, but it was also a pretty common flower as well. Likewise, the lily of the valleys, attractive, yes, in their own way, but they could be found anywhere in the vast valleys of their day. So don't think a rare orchid here. Think a wallflower. And yet see how her beloved affirms her again as she doubts 2 verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. He tells her, my love, I only have eyes for you. You are a lily among the brambles, comparing her to other women. But she needs to hear it. She needs this affirmation. Friends, affirmation matters. Treating our spouse with exclusive affection that we show to no other matters. Husbands, are we using our eyes to delight in our wives exclusively? 
Are we steering away and resisting that urge to glance lustfully at other women? Are we actively affirming our wives with our words and our gestures regularly? And wives, this is not merely for the husbands. This is a woman speaking. Are you affirming your husbands? The woman sees no shame here in passionately praising her man. And yet if we're not careful as time goes on, as kids may come along, as over the course of time physical appearance takes its toll, if we neglect to affirm both in our behavior and our words, our spouse intentionally and often, well, those doubts that linger under the surface can get out of control and cause lasting harm. I have a good friend who tells every young couple he prepares for marriage, write down five things. Five things you find most attractive about one another, not just looks, but what do you love about them? Who they are as a person, their their inner beauty, their their godliness, their, their good character, but not even just that. Why are they such a good fit for you? And then each year he tells them, take out that list of five and ask yourself, has my love for them caused those features of them to blossom and flourish. Wise couples intentionally celebrate each other, both in the large and the small things. I'm sure if your partner came home and said, I got a promotion, well, you would know that's a big deal. You wouldn't just continue looking at your phone and say, all right, yeah, sounds good. You praise them. You'd affirm them. You'd show that you care and you love them, and so you care about what happens to them. And so, don't just wait for challenging times to prove you can be supportive and sensitive. You know, sometimes we often don't know the doubts lingering under the surface. We've got to listen well. And we've got to keep on affirming love for our spouse. In the everyday moments, just guys, do not compare your wife to a horse. All right. Well, our verses close with the words of the woman, having been so wonderfully affirmed, and she praises her beloved in kind. Verse 3 of chapter 2, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Her, her beloved just called her a lily amongst the brambles, and so now she describes him as this great apple tree standing out in the midst of the forest one whom she loves to sit in his shade. With great delight I sat in his shadow. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and in his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. An amazing influence his love has on her. She doesn't want to be away from it. She wants to be under it. She is actually sick with love. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Again, we have great intimacy, a loving embrace. But how does it make you feel, honestly? How does this make you feel when you see two lovers in a warm embrace down at the park at KLCC? I'm sure part of you wants to be happy for them, but I suspect for A good number of us here this morning, it can be a painful sight as well. I mean, perhaps seeing such love reminds us of a love we once knew, 
but no longer because we have known the pain of divorce or bereavement. Perhaps we are single here this morning and we do have a deep desire for intimacy and we are struggling with the doubt of not knowing whether we will know this intimacy at all. The affirmation that we long for, it's not on the horizon today. What do we do with our real unmet desires? Well, first we need to pay attention to the words of verse 7 very closely. You see, it reminds us this song wasn't primarily written for the married. Uh, we might think if we're, if we're single, then this song has nothing to say to me, but this song was actually written for those who had come of age but were not yet married. Verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Here is a woman Deeply in love, saying to those who are single, don't awaken feelings like this until the time is right. There is such power. Once sexual love is aroused, it's awakened, it is not easily reversed. And the more we travel down that road, the more our sexual appetites demand expression, all the way to consummation. It's very hard to not go there once we start that ball rolling. Now, sex practiced in the God-given context of lifelong, monogamous marriage is a good gift. But when abused in our own selfish wants, at the wrong time, with the wrong person, it leads to heartache and relational turmoil. Friends, do not stir up love until it pleases And yet some of us, of course, might be wondering, well, then what if that time never comes? What if my desires are never met? Is this song just going to stir up longings and feelings in me that just bring frustration? And yet, thankfully, no. Because whilst, yes, this song does celebrate human intimacy, it celebrates so much more than that. It's not just any love song. This is the song of love between God's king and his bride. See, as we step back, as we see this song in the broader scope of all of God's word, we see it is just one small part of the far, far greater love story. The love story between God and us. And where that story is heading is the consummation of the marriage of Christ and all his church. You know, a marriage that we are all invited to partake in and enjoy regardless of our relational status right now. No, this song is not simply a painful lesson on what we're missing out on. It is a beautiful picture of God's far deeper love available to all who will receive him, the love that we were made to know and enjoy and find our rest in. The Bible starts with God creating us in love as he provided for our every need. And yet each and every one of us, we have spurned that love. We have turned away from him to love ourselves and pretend we can embrace life without him, our creator, our provider. And so our relationship with him is fractured. 
Instead of knowing the security of His love in and of ourselves, we do experience pain, we do experience frustration, we do experience doubt. The woman here struggles with her insecurities in this song, and yet we had good reason to doubt ourselves before God. It wasn't a matter of the darkness of our skin, but knowing something of the darkness of our hearts in sin. And yet God sees it all. He sees what we cannot even see about ourselves, and in the face of it, he shows us love, far greater love. Ultimately, as he gave his son, God's true king, our Lord Jesus, for his bride, the church. Christ was the one who drew close, not us, as our beloved king. When we were anything but beautiful, and in his great love, he endured our every sin to the point of laying down his own life that we might have the hope of sharing in God's love again as we trust on him now. Now we, as his bride, his people, can rejoice in his affirmation as he affirms us, the ones for whom he died as our beloved king. It is finished. It is paid for. Never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. Nothing can separate me, separate you from my love. No, he will never abandon us who continue to trust on him, his church, his bride. He will bring us to that great wedding day, what we saw pictured so beautifully for us in Revelation 19 earlier. The day on which our greatest desires and our deepest longings will be met in every way in his unquenchable love. And knowing that, knowing that whoever we are, that that day is coming for us, that empowers us to love as he has loved us today pursuing one another's needs as he pursued us, which might mean for us persevering and loving and affirming our spouse, not just on the good days, but on the hard days, on the bad days, because we know the affirmation of Christ who loved us when we were at our worst. Persevering in singleness rather than failing to love God and others in sexual promiscuity, because we know the affirmation of Christ who calls us to find our rest ultimately in him where it alone can be found. No, instead we look forward, whoever we might be, to the true wedding day, when we will come into the joy of his own presence and the frustrations, the real frustrations, the real doubts that pain us now will be a thing of the past. We will rejoice in him. Friends, whether you are married or not, All of us, let us desire Christ, our King, above all. Let's be honest about the real doubts we have before him and so hear his wonderful affirmation as the one who loved us to the point of death. He will keep us. He will bring us to himself where every right desire will be met and every doubt answered in the perfect affirmation of his everlasting love. Marriage is for a lifetime, but the love of Christ is for eternity. So let's keep on setting the desires of our hearts above all on him, our true king. And let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song. And we thank you for how it is so brutally honest about the nature of relationships, desire, but doubt, and the importance of affirmation. Pray, Lord, whatever our situation might be today, you would help us to see clearly where we need to repent, where we need to listen and respond. We thank you so much, Lord, that this song does not merely celebrate human intimacy, but far more greatly it celebrates the love that you have shown us, your church, in your Son. We thank you for the certain hope that we share in as Christ's people of that great wedding day. So strengthen us this coming week to be living wisely in the light of it, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.